Well, good morning, Grace Church. What is going on? Hey, my name is Pastor Joe. I'm one of two youth pastors here at the Grace Middleburg Heights campus, in case you're not familiar with who I am. And I am excited to have a chance to preach and proclaim God's word to you this morning. I'm not excited about the occasion in which I get to do so, as Pastor Scott was just talking about, uh, as uh, Pastor Jonathan's uh, mother is uh, and possibly in her final moment. So please, as Pastor Scott said, continue to pray for Pastor Jonathan and Mary and the entire Schaefer family. With that being said, uh, we are in week two of a series called Devoted, talking about uh, the new year being devoted to Jesus, what that looks like. And I'm excited to preach to you uh, out of the book of Acts. So if you're uh, following along in a hard copy of the Bible or maybe on your phone, you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, you could do so. And in in the meantime, I want to share a story with you. A uh, few months ago, uh, my wife and I realized we had an open, uh, a more open than usual Friday night. And so we hit up a bunch of friends uh, last minute and had them over for dinner. And we got to hang out and enjoy some conversation with them, catch up about what's going on in their lives as well as they could hear about our own. And uh, after dinner, my buddy Mike, he says, hey guys, I brought the Oculus over. Does uh, anybody know what the the Oculus is uh, just a couple hands, so a lot of you don't even know what that is. Okay, the Oculus is a virtual reality gaming system. It goes on your face like a big pair of goggles, except for you can't see through; you just see like the game. And then it's got like some like sensory controllers, and it's supposed to provide you this like super real experience. And so Mike says he brought over the Oculus, and he'd uh, like us to try it out. And he says, Joe, there's this game where you go up uh, in like virtual reality world, you go up an elevator, you walk a plank, and then you jump off. Like first off, why is that a game? And secondly, uh, Mike knew that I am terrified of stationary heights. Like I love roller coasters, but I am terrified of stationary, like you have to stand there, look over heights, I can't stand it. And so Mike says, I want you to go first, Joe. I said, yeah, forget you, buddy. And so I put on the Oculus. I take up the, like, the controllers. The, I press the little button. The elevator takes me up, and it feels real. It, it feels like you could, like, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm imagining this. Maybe I'm not. I can't really remember the experience. It feels like you could feel the wind in the game. Like, it, it's just a weird experience. So I walk the plank. Mike comes up behind me, gives me a little nudge, like pushes me. I get mad at him. And, and I get to the edge of the plank, and I realize, like, I don't care if this is virtual reality. I just can't do this. I am not doing this right now. That's terrifying. So I take the Oculus off. I, I hand it back to Mike. And then my brother-in-law, uh, he, he gets it. And just like so nonchalantly, like almost mocking me, puts the Oculus on, takes the centers, clicks the button, top of the elevator, walks the plank. And I'm like, all right, forget this. I'm gonna conquer my fear of heights in virtual reality right now. And so uh, I, I put the Oculus back on and see in that short kind of couple moments that uh, was like that interval period, everybody's attention started focusing to the TV screen because they're trying to figure out how to get the Oculus onto our big screen TV. And so I have the Oculus on, I'm gearing up my courage, I'm giving myself like some self prep talks, like I'm going to do this thing. And uh, I'm right behind like our living room couch, so almost in the dining room, nobody's really paying attention to me, and everybody's watching the TV, trying to get this gaming system onto there. And so I press the button, I go up, I take three massive steps onto the virtual reality plank, and I 
launch. And the next thing you know, everybody just hears a crash, a boom. I dove right into our dining room table. All the glasses we were drinking out of, broken on the floor. I got cuts on my arm. People are, uh, Oculus halfway off my face. People are looking at me like, Joe, what are you doing? And I'm looking at them like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be watching me. I'm the one at risk here and you're not even paying attention. So the moral of the story is this. Do not play virtual reality uh, games unless you have adult supervision and make sure that supervision is actually paying attention to you. Uh, no, no, uh, but, but for real, I, I, said, I share that story with you this morning uh, to kind of be a framework, and I'll tie back into it later, uh, of two things. The first one is this. When we live in false realities and false narratives, we set ourselves up for hurts, wounds, and scars. The second reason I share that is I think a lot of times church, Christian community is like walking that plank and jumping into the unknown. I have a hero of mine, academic mentor, who says, welcome to church where anything can happen and probably will. I think when we do Christian community the right way, It's kind of like walking the plank and stepping into the unknown. I want to preach a message to you today, like I said, from the book of Acts, called You Can't Fake Freedom. You Can't Fake Freedom. Acts 4, 32 through 37 says this. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. See, uh, the book of Acts, a little bit about it real fast just to contextualize this, is written by a dude named Luke. Luke was a physician. He's a detail guy. And actually, same, same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, Acts isn't supposed to be two separate stories. It's one continuous story. When we canonized Scripture some time ago, we jammed John's Gospel right in the middle of Luke and Acts for some reason. And so, uh, but it's the same book, and it's, it's a two-part story. Uh, the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' earth ministry, and the book of Acts is our only record, really, of the the, the birth of the church and the early church movement, right? And so in Acts 2, the Spirit of God falls upon the apostles and some others in the upper room on a day known as Pentecost, and and, and wild things begin to happen. You start seeing people speak in tongues, people prophesy. Just a few moments later, uh, Peter preaches this prophetic witness sermon. A little bit later on, you see miracles occurring. By the time you get to Acts 6, you see the first Christian martyr, a dude by the name of Stephen, and even with all of 
of these miracles happening, arguably one of the greatest miracles of all is found right here in Acts 4, that the church is so unified, that these people are so radically transformed by the grace of Jesus, that they're literally giving their possessions, laying down their own rights to property, money, things like that, for the betterment of this kingdom community. It's incredible. Radical hospitality, radical generosity, a compelling vision for what church community could be. In fact, many people still to this day say, man, I dream of having an Acts 2 type church. I dream of having an Acts 4 type community. And when we say those statements here in the West, West meaning Western Hemisphere, American church in the 21st century, sometimes I don't think we realize what we're talking about. We're one of the most hyper-individualized cultures of all time. How do we know this? Uh, how do we know that it trickles into our, our, our Christian faith? What's one of the statements you hear people make all the time? Well, my personal walk with Jesus, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but to make a claim about your personal walk with Jesus, that would have never happened in first century times because following Jesus was a communal experience in a village type way of life. So I think as well that the Acts Church is a compelling vision, but I don't realize sometimes, I don't think we realize how much it would cost us to dive into a community like that. In fact, when people saw this community, they didn't first label them or stamp them as Christians. They called them followers of the way. There was a radical way that they were living, so different, so foreign to the people around them that people couldn't help but notice See, I think sometimes Christian, that terminology, is so skewed in this culture that my question today isn't, do you identify as Christian? My question for you is this. Can people tell by the way you live your life that you're following the way of Jesus? Is there something so radical, so transformative, so powerful of a difference in your life that people say, man, that girl, that guy, there's something different about them. They follow Jesus. But we'll find out momentarily that the Acts 4 church community was not without problems. How many of you know that the Bible was not written in chapters and verses? That's something we came along and did years later. And so while Acts chapter 4 is done, the narrative of the story is just beginning. There was not supposed to be a break between Acts 4 and Acts 5 uh, because the story continues on. And that's an important detail because now we're about to read one of the scariest things that happens in the New Testament. So you are forewarned. Uh, welcome to church. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Also sold, meaning this is linked back to four of Joseph who sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter, 
said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. In great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Just like great fear might have just seized you as well because this story is bonkers, right? This is a crazy story to read on a Sunday morning when you were just gearing up to watch a meaningless Browns game because once again, we're back to our losing ways. So might as well shake you up and jar you a little bit because the game doesn't mean anything later. So I'm preaching on Ananias and Sapphire today. There we go. And so this story, (laughs) this story is wild, right? If you're new to church or new to the Bible, you're probably tempted to, one, walk out of the room, two, you're racking your brain to see the last time you lied about something, right? And so, but I think when we ground this with Acts 4 and we see the entire narrative and and maybe look up a few details that don't just jump off the page, I think we'll find something super special and important about this text. But the first question I gotta ask, and I need some vulnerability in the room today, so I'm not just preaching to myself. Anybody in the room, you ever fake something? Anybody, you ever fake something? Any, any of you athletes, you ever fake an injury to avoid, uh, uh, avoid embarrassment? You ever been there? You ever get your ankles broken on the court or laid out on the football field, and so rather than get up and just make that walk of shame back to the sidelines, you just said, I'm hurt, I'm hurt. Let somebody else carry. And it wasn't even your body, it was your pride. When I was uh, five years old, my parents took me to the Holy of Holies for the first time. Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and um, it was me, my mom, my dad, my sister. She was nine. It was my first time at Chuck E. Cheese. And, and I was ecstatic, you know. Mouse is creepy, but the rest is cool, right? And, and, and so uh, we eat our food and begin to play in this massive playground type of space. And I find myself on like the Chuck E. Cheese high ropes course. You know, the jungle gym with the, with the giant rope that you kind of walk or crawl across where nothing bad can happen. And um, what proceeded to happen was I got my foot stuck in the high ropes area. And so impulsively, I shouted to my mom, mom, I'm stuck. And that was the worst decision I could have ever made because my mom's uh, what, what people know as a helicopter mom. 
And I don't know if this is true, but this is how I'm gonna remember the story for the rest of my life. It feels like the fire department showed up in this moment. Like, like everything, the whole demeanor, kids are no longer having fun anymore. Things are getting crazy at your local Chuck E. Cheese. People are running around, scrambling. My mom's shouting at people. My son's stuck. And all the while this commotion is happening underneath me, I get my foot free. But we've come too far. <laughs> People run around. I, I, so I just proceed to, nobody's looking. There's a girl kind of like across from me, across the way. I'm just hoping she doesn't notice. So I'm kind of just get, like staring at her, trying to, you know, wiggle my foot in there and get it tied up and, and stuck. And all I remember is a firefighter, probably not, but that's how I remember it. Somebody coming up from Chuck E. Cheese to get me out and everybody's celebrating and going crazy and me just... I'm okay, and I get down, and I see my mom, and she says, we are never coming back here again, <laughs> and we did it. The next time I went to Chuck E. Cheese, I was in college, right? <laughs> True story. But when I was in seventh grade, uh, kind of my claim to fame in seventh grade, notice, I, I didn't grow up in church, I didn't grow up following Jesus, so don't judge me, Okay. My claim to fame in seventh grade was I dated three eighth grade girls my seventh grade year, right? And so I thought it was pretty cool, goofy looking dude, but man, I had charisma, confidence, and comedy. Those are the three C's that get you just about anywhere, right? And, 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 uh, and so I, I dated three eighth grade girls my seventh grade year, and uh, this was before DMs. We had IMs, AIM, actually, actually AOL Instant Messenger. Anybody in the house know what I'm talking about this morning? Can I get an, a, uh, can I get an amen for the AIM, right? And so what you used to do when the weekend hit was you would just spend way too much time on your computer messaging your friends late at night. AOL Instant Messenger, right? So I'm dating this, this eighth grade girl. And notice I put in quote marks because uh, parents, if you have a middle schooler that says they're dating someone, no, they're not. In order to go on a date, you have to have money and you have to have transportation. And if you're driving them everywhere, this isn't a date. This is glorified, glamorized babysitting of you and your crush, okay? That's what it is. So middle schoolers, just keep that in mind. You're not dating them. You have a crush and your mom and dad is taking and going on dates with you, right? But I'm dating this eighth grade girl and um, I get a message on AOL Instant Messenger that night from this girl's best friend. And this girl's best friend, she happens to be the prettiest girl in the entire middle school. And she uh, slides in my AIMs and she says, hey, I have a question for you. What do you do when your crush is dating someone else? And I got, my heart just starts beating fast. My hands, my palms are sweaty. And I'm like, I have a question for you. Are you talking about me? And she says, yes. And I am now thrown into the biggest crisis and conundrum of my middle school life, right? Seventh grade, didn't know Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, the prettiest girl in middle school likes me? So... I devise a plan and I develop a game plan. All right, I'm in a relationship with her best friend. So don't just judge me, ladies. What about her? Throw shade both ways. <laughs> and I, so I devise a plan. I say, uh, um, hey, what if I just tell so-and-so that I don't feel like being in a relationship? 
We let this thing ride out the weekend. And then on Monday, you and I can start dating. And you know what she says? Sounds good to me. So we start dating, and two weeks later, I'm on AIM one night, late at night, and guess what? She slides in my aims again, and guess what she says to me? She says, I just don't feel like being in a relationship. And the next day, she's dating my arch nemesis, who is also in eighth grade. How many of you know that when you fake things, when you're fraudulent about who you are, it always comes back to bite you? Can I get an amen? amen. And so... This story, there's a lot going on, but the, the, the first thing I think we need to recognize is that the story of Ananias and Sapphira is tied to the story of Joseph. So let's revisit chapter four real fast. This amazing thing is happening in the Christian community of the early church. God is moving in such a powerful way that people are falling in love, not only with him, but they're starting to get devoted to one another and they're seeking the greater good of the commonwealth of this Christian community. So much so that there's highlight people like a dude named Joseph who wants one day sells a property and then he goes and lays the money that he's attained at the apostles' feet. This is radical generosity. Whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, can you imagine today selling your house, taking all the profit, coming up to church leaders and just saying, hey, God bless you, do what you want. Is it possible that this act by Joseph has gained a little bit of chatter in the community. Is it possible that Ananias and Sapphira catch wind of what Joseph has done and how Joseph's made an impact and they think to themselves, huh, people really love Joseph and see him as a generous person. Well, maybe we could do the same thing, only we won't give everything, but we'll just pretend like we did. See, it's my belief that Ananias and Sapphira, their first mistake is this. They take their focus off of Jesus and they start focusing on Joseph. They stop saying, I, I want to be like Jesus. And they start saying, I want to be like Joseph. Can I tell you something, friend? Comparison kills. You ever compare yourself? You ever compare your convictions to somebody? You ever compare your money to somebody? You ever compare your influence, your possessions, your giftings or callings? to somebody else's, your spirituality as a whole. You ever compare yourself? See a lot of blank stares, not a lot of nods, but the truth is that you probably do, especially in a, uh, in a generation where social media and, and constantly scrolling and seeing other people's lives, it is hard not to compare ourselves to other people. But comparison kills. Because you weren't meant to be more like Joe. You weren't meant to be more like Jonathan. You weren't meant to be more like Joseph the Levite from Cyprus, Ananias and Sapphira. You were meant to be more like Jesus. So Ananias and Sapphira, they see the ripple effects of Joseph's generosity and they decide, 
But what happens if we fake it? See, it's tempting to think when you just read this, the, the, the story quickly, it's tempting to think that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is greed, right? If they would have just given more, they obviously have this deep-seated, rooted love for money. But I think you see totally a different picture when you read the verse of Peter in verse four, uh, the words of Peter in verse four. He says, didn't the property belong to you before it was sold? And wasn't the money yours to do whatever you wanted with after the sale? Peter's saying, the money was yours. The possession was yours. We weren't asking you to do this. So why did you choose to act like something and somebody you were not? The sin here, friends, is not greed. The sin here is faking, fraudulence, lying about who they are. I was reading this passage a few years back, and it went from being a scary story to me to being a sad story. It's because I found just one interesting detail about it. So I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible and I see that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus named Barnabas, who's, which uh, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, when, when, when I get all the details about one person in a story, I want to know some details about somebody else. Like, why does Luke, the detail-driven doctor, why does he want me to know all this stuff about Joseph, his name, and what they called him? Son of encouragement, right? Barnabas means son of encouragement. I already knew what Joseph means because that's my name. Yahweh will increase. And so I'm like, why do we get Joseph, Barnabas's name, but not Ananias and Sapphira's name meaning? So I decided to look up what, the, what does Ananias and Sapphira mean in this text? And when I found this out, it, shift my whole per, it shifted my whole perspective of the passage. Ananias means Favored of the Lord. Sapphira means pleasing or peacefully or harmoniously composed. They were pleasing, favored, harmoniously composed, and they chose to be fake instead. Because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, his son, God looks at us as favored of the Lord, beautifully uh, pleasing, peacefully, harmoniously composed, not because of anything we can do, but because of everything that he has done. But how many of y'all, including myself, sometimes we choose to live and be fake instead? We choose to hide the brokenness, hide the messy parts, Hide the ugly stuff because we'd rather look like the Josephs of the world, of the church, rather than look more like Jesus. And it's heartbreaking because can you imagine? It's not that hard. Just imagine this story goes a different way. Imagine Ananias and Sapphira see what Joseph's done with his gift and they think to themselves, wow, what an incredible display of generosity. Hey, Peter, we have a field. We want to sell it, but we're just going to be honest. We're not ready to give 100% of the income away. 
can we give 20% away? You think Peter would have been like, nah, you're not all in. Get out of here. Peter would have been like, you just provided communion for our love meals like for months. That's incredible. God bless your generosity. Let's go get dinner tonight. That is awesome. We're so glad that you're taking steps in your faith and devoting yourself to the community. It was not a requirement to sell everything you had just to be accepted by the early church. This story could have had a different ending. And that's what makes it so sad. But they chose instead to be fake and fraudulent about who they were. You know what I've always found really interesting about this passage is verse 5-5. Five, five. It says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. It does not say that a lightning or thunderbolt came from heaven and zapped him. It does not say that God busted out his Thor hammer and bopped him on the head. It doesn't even say that Peter said, hey, you lied, now you die. It says, when he heard this, he fell down and died. When he heard the truth, it killed him. When we are fraudulent about who we are, friends, it kills us from the inside out. You ever have somebody that you love speak hard truth to you? What's it do inside of you? I know for me, it makes me mad. Because I know I need to hear it. But I think sometimes when we get so steeped in a sin, so steeped in shame, so steeped in a certain addictive behavior or pattern, it's way easier for us to just hide and cover that thing up rather than letting the truth of Jesus transform us and being honest with it and coming out. And when we hear somebody pinpoint that issue, call into truth what's really inside of us, man, doesn't it kill you from the inside out? Don't you? Oh, I did not want to hear that. See, John 8, 32, it's Jesus speaking. He says that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Later, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. When Jesus says they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free, he's talking about himself. Truth isn't principles, truth's a person. His name's Jesus. Later on, Jesus is about to depart from the earth. John 15, he says this in verse 26, when the advocate comes, who, will I, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John 8, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Later on he says, I am the truth. So Jesus is the person of truth. The Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth. The God and author of all truth, absolute truth. He's constantly calling you and I out of our lies. Out of our faking. Out of our fraudulence. Out of our comparison to other people. And he's calling us into our true identity as sons and daughters who are favored of the Lord, beautifully, harmoniously pleasing to him and composed. See, when we learn that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and that the more we encounter the truth of Christ, guess what happens? 
we start to learn the truth about ourselves too. And we start to get really comfortable with the truth about ourselves. Because guess what the truth about you and I is? It's actually a universal truth about everybody in the room. You have some sort of brokenness, baggage, and damage inside of you. It's called sin and the ramifications and the implications of that sin. But can I tell you something? That sin does not have the final word. The final word over your life because of what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection is that the final word over your life is that you're favored of the Lord. You're pleasing. You're peacefully, harmoniously made or composed. Back to my story at the beginning. See, when we live in lies, when we live in false realities, when we construct false narratives and false realities for ourselves to walk into, that will end, uh, uh, end up leaving us broken, shattered, and scars. So what does God do? He provides for us his son, yes, but also a local church community to start doing life with so we can start coming out of hiding. When we devote ourselves to that type of community, when we devote ourselves to that view and version of church, what a compelling vision. I think the church can provide for us things that no other entity can. The church can teach us to love people who are theologically, racially, politically, socioeconomically different like no other entity can. The church can teach us how to navigate through, healthy, uh, through conflict in a healthy way when most of the world is fight or flight and sweeps under the rug. The church can teach us how to fight clean. The church can teach us to admire and support other gifts while not comparing our gifts to their gifts and seeing that all gifts benefit the body. And the church can teach us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so we can walk out of this place forgiven, healed, and whole. I've heard people say, well, I confess my sins to God. Why do I need to confess my sins to another person? Jesus is my high priest. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, that Jesus says that he is our high priest and then he calls us to the priesthood of believers? I've heard it said this way. Jesus... Confessing our sins to God, to Jesus, gets us forgiven. Confessing our sins to others is what gets us healed and walking in accountability and freedom. And friends, I really believe when we start taking this seriously, devote ourselves to this type of community, guess what happens? The world starts looking at us and saying, there's something different about them. There's something different about the way they love people differently than them. There's something different about the way they work on their conflict. There's something different about their openness, their vulnerability, and their transfer, uh, uh, transparency. And they start saying, I want what they have. A couple weeks ago, to close this today, I, uh, I was headed to church here, right? 
and I did not want to be here. I had a rough week. It's probably because the Buckeyes lost to Michigan that week, I think. And so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I had a rough week. I didn't like myself very much that week. I didn't like anything in my life very much that week. I did not, the last thing I wanted to do was go to church. Because I'm, and I'm a pastor. So it's a bad gig when you're a pastor and you don't want to go to church, okay? And, and so I get out of my car and I'm walking and like I hear somebody walking behind me and it's sweet Anna Beatty. And I think to myself, like I see her over my shoulder, I'm like, I cannot talk to Anna Beatty right now or I will cry my eyes out. So I'm gonna walk as fast as I can and avoid her. And um, sorry, you could just read my mail this morning. I hope it's cool. <laughs> and so then I get in the lobby, so I'm engaging with some people. And then I get like, the, that was the one punch. I get the two punch and it's Jamie Norton. Now, I don't know if people would describe Jamie as sweet, but she is awesome. She's my type of person. She's a little feisty. I like that. And as soon as I see Jamie, I'm like, I am done for. Like, it's over. So I don't even try. I just look at her. She says, hi, how are you doing? I was like, can we go talk somewhere? And I, didn't know, I don't even know how much I talked. I just cried and listened. But it was so encouraging to me to have somebody be able to look at me and say, Joe, what you're doing is you're dealing with the darkness inside of you that all of us deal with. And sometimes that darkness is scary, friends. But when you start getting that out, getting that to people you can trust and devoting yourself to healthy community and letting people in that, you start to become free. And that type of freedom, can I tell you something? You can't fake it. You can't fake freedom. Let's pray. Jesus, all over this room, Lord, we love you today and we wanna love you better. We just ask God that we could take the truth of your word this morning and the truth of what you speak over our lives that we're favored, pleasingly, harmoniously composed and nothing could ever tear us from your hand. Let us walk in honesty and in humility and open our lives to you but also others because you've not called us to do this thing alone. We love you and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Mm -hmm.